0: Well, good morning, Lakewood. (laughs) So good to be here. We are continuing in our summer series in the Psalms. So if you guys would turn with me to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's quite a few verses. We're going to read 10 verses. It's going to give us a flavor of it. And then we're going to be covering all the other verses throughout the sermon. So we're going to pick it up in verse 17 and read those 10 verses. And if you would stand... For the reading of God's word, we stand out of reverence and respect for God's holy and inspired word. This is Psalm 44, verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps deviated from your path. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals. And covered us with a shadow of death. If we have forgotten your name, the name of our God, or spread our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be blessed by the reading and the study of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. So this is Psalm 44, which, like Psalm 43 last week, is a psalm of lament. And laments aren't grumbling or whining, but God's people crying out earnestly, pleading with God. Psalm 44 is a psalm of national lament, unlike Psalm 43 last week, which was a personal psalm of lament, which began with vindicate me. Psalm 44 will show us the turmoil without. Last week, Noel showed us the turmoil within. This turmoil without destroys a nation. The pronouns we'll look at with this verse are we and us. This is a prayer of a people, the nation of Israel, with a common plight. A harsh and humiliating military defeat. Because God had not carried the nation into victory on the battlefield. With such a devastating defeat at the hands of their enemies, this brought grief and sorrow, which was magnified even more by the fact that their prayers went unanswered. As a result, God felt far away. He felt unresponsive to their pleas for deliverance. Personal and national laments are themes of scripture that are rarely talked about in the church because they make people uncomfortable. They think somehow to display such desperate faith, they think that somehow betrays that faith. And that's why you probably never heard of a sermon on Psalm 43 or Psalm 44. Positive and encouraging psalms are much more popular. Just listen to how the next two psalms in the Psalter, listen to how they begin. So the next psalm, we'll hear next week, Psalm 45, verse 1, my heart overflows with a good theme. And then consider Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, the present help in trouble. You won't find such joy in confidence in a psalm of lament. What you will find is God bringing affliction to his people. God who blesses then afflicts, God who giveth and then taketh away. Big evangelicalism doesn't like this side of God. They like a God who will give you your best life now. And that's not the God of the Bible, and that's not the God of Psalm 44. The God who afflicts is not marketable. Most churches want something uplifting, a theme where man is a central figure, where man is the great beneficiary of God's blessing. Yet Psalms of Lament explode the theology of moralistic, therapeutic deism, which has infected modern Christianity. Moralistic, therapeutic deism has as its central goal in life that God should help us and make us happy and to feel good about oneself. While the core tenet of Psalm 44 is that the hand of God, the very arm of the Lord, He is the one who is bringing affliction. Even devastation to His people, even when they are faithful. Nothing brings us home more than when we face difficulties in our lives. That our world turns upside down when suddenly things are going well and then you're faced with a broken relationship. Or a betrayal by someone close. Or a job loss or a searing false accusation leveled against you. Or maybe a debilitating health condition. Or maybe you lose a child or a father, a mother, a sibling. And you come to that dark place of uncertainty, of unknowns, when your path forward seems to be in doubt. And without any clear direction, all you can utter is why Lord. Why, Lord? That is where the nation of Israel is here. With no easy answers. In fact, there are no answers. They're left asking, why are we left out of the Lord's blessing? This is so emblematic of Job's broken confession in the book of Job. You remember when everything he has gets wiped out. What does Job say? Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. You see, Scripture understands the pain and the despondency of the afflicted. We see this in the life of Job. We see it in the witness of Stephen. We see it in the life of Paul. And we see this in the sinless Christ. In perfect obedience to his Father. Sweating drops of blood in the peak of anguish. Anguish so great that an angel from heaven had to strengthen him. As he faced the coming cross, as he faced becoming a curse, as he faced the wrath of his father, asking three times for this cup to pass. The cup that contained my sin, the cup that contained your sin, which he drank every last drop. You see, affliction by God is at the heart of the gospel. Affliction by God is at the heart of Psalm 44, and affliction by God is the reality of every believer. Now, one thing I love about Psalm 44 is it comes conveniently pre-outlined. So verses 1 through 8, the psalmist looks back to the glory of Israel's past. And then verses 9 through 25, the psalmist sees the grief of Israel's present and then it finishes with verse 26. The psalmist looks forward to the goal of redemption in Israel's future. Now, our first section, verses 1 through 8, the psalmist looks back on, glory, on the glory of Israel's past. We can see that just taking a sample of some of these phrases in the first eight verses, that God was active, God was powerful when he previously went before the nation. Listen to some of these phrases just in the first eight verses. The deeds you performed, you drove out, you planted, you afflicted, you set free, your right hand, your right arm, the light of your face, through your name, you saved, you put to shame. That's a sovereign God acting. Verse 1 of Psalm 44 reads, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have recounted to us the work that you did in their days, In the days of old, the psalmist's lament starts sounding like a praise psalm, doesn't it? Recounting the glories of Israel's past. And notice that these great works were not orchestrated by Israel, but by the mighty works of God Himself. Look at verse 2 You with your own hand dispossessed the nations, then you planted them, you afflicted the peoples, then you cast them out. This brings to mind the conquering of the promised land, the destruction of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which were a people more numerous, warlike, gigantic, courageous. They were firmly established and fortified. And yet again, it was not the feeble nation of Israel that gets the credit here. Israel was planted in the promised land by the Lord because he first "'dispossessed the enemies, afflicted and cast them out.'" Verse 3 continues to praise the Lord for His favor upon them. Verse 3 reads, "'For by their own sword they did not possess the land, "'and by their own arm did not save them, "'but your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them.'" They could not describe their memorable victories to themselves. But rather, it was the divine hand of God that fought for them and the divine arm of the Lord that powerfully sustained them and the light of God's face, signifying the favor of God. They would know this. You, reading this in Psalm 44, would know this verse at the end of verse 3, the face of God finding favor with them. He would know it from number 6. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up His face on you and give you peace. All these anthropomorphic expressions showed powerfully an active God who found favor with them in times past to such a degree that their very existence was contingent not upon themselves but upon God alone. Verse 4 indicates a change from the works of the Lord in the ancient past to a more immediate past as we see the pronouns change from we and us to my and I, which may be evidence that this psalm was written by a beaten down king or maybe a defeated military officer on on behalf of his nation. Verses 4 through 8 read, You are my king, O God. Command salvation for Jacob. Through you, We will push back our adversaries through your name. We will tread down those who rise up against us, for I will not trust in my bow and my sword will not save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long. And we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. As if to say, this is not just our forefathers that God showed favor to and performed mighty works to save. But you have also shown favor to us. Saying in essence, I can personally attest to such victory. Stating in verse 4, you are my king, O God. He's saying you are that God. You are my God that we trust in to deliver us. Verse 5 says, we are trusting you to push back and shred down our adversaries. And clearly, as verse 6 indicates, it is not in themselves, not trusting in the, his, bow, his bow nor his sword to save him. Now, this is a good place to be, looking not to self, but to God in our darkest hour, saying, I don't have any control over this person. I don't have any control over this situation, but you do, God, appealing to the only one who knows the hearts of all men and can change them. And the only one who has the power, as verse 7 indicates, to save us from our adversaries, while at the same time shaming those very same adversaries. Verse 8 wraps up this thought with the only boasting that's bearable before God, and that is boasting of him. Just as Jeremiah spoke, but let him who boasts boast in this, That he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. Paul echoed this to the Corinthians, didn't he? When he said, Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Boasting in the Lord is pleasing to him, but so is eternal thanksgiving to him. The verse concludes it with, we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. Interestingly, Paul shows us in Romans 1 the opposite behavior of the unbeliever. It reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For even though they knew God, now listen to these two things, they did not glorify God, They did not give him thanks. The psalmist, as spokesman for believing Israel, in contrast to these God rejectors in Romans 1, glorifies God in his boasting and gives him thanks forever. With the Selah added as if to say, pause and consider. This is only one of 71 times in the Psalter where Selah is used. And it's fitting that it's used here when amplifying the boasting of and the thanksgiving for the Lord, for his mighty deeds and works on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, what is so important in understanding the direction of this psalm is that the psalmist, through these first eight verses, is saying we are full of gratitude. Our faith and our confidence is so completely in you. He's saying that we recognize our success in the past came from your hand. Our heart is inclined to gratitude. We bow humbly before you. We can identify with the faith of our fathers, and we are unconditionally committed to blessing your name forever and ever. This is a posture of faith. The psalmist comes to. They're in a position of full faith, full trust, and full gratitude. The point is these are faithful believers of God, not disobedient, not God rejectors. Perhaps the psalmist wanted this thought fully seated before he gets to verse 9, where the entire direction of the psalm changes and builds on the desperation of the present situation of the nation of Israel. The nation being in the throes of a humiliating military defeat. The psalm, which began as a praise psalm, now finds its true identity as a psalm of lament. Verse 9 and 10 couldn't be more stark. And it starts with the word, yet, which is an indication of a course correction about to be unveiled. He says, yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. And those who hate us have plundered us for themselves. The greatness of the past glories of the nation's history in verse 1 through 8, have now given way to the sadness and distress of the present. And notice that God, who was active in the previous blessings, well, guess what? He is just as active in the present disaster. The perspective of the psalmist reflects that they are in a position, not due to their own failures or even other forces, but due to the will and the work of a sovereign God who is the one who has rejected his people, bringing them shame by abandoning their armies on the battlefield, causing them to retreat and be plundered. So the psalmist is crushed. He's bewildered. Rather than advancing with God, going before us, we are left all alone. Rather than taking spoil, we are plundered. Rather than victory, we are vanquished. Rather than jubilation, we are facing humiliation and dishonor. This is not how it was supposed to go. What is the purpose for our failure? How does that honor your name? Ever thought about that in your Christian life? Lord, what's going on? I've been in your word. I've been in prayer. I go to church. I worship. I'm patiently waiting on you in faith. This is not the way it's supposed to go. How does my life in shambles honor you? You ever feel like Job? Even in this secular world, they have some understanding of the patience of Job. But listen to how God describes Job. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity. You know, the arc of Job's life alone should annihilate the heresy that's being pumped out of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel movement. A movement that has so infected modern Christianity with the idea that man can control God. If you do this, God has to do that. Sow a seed. Speak something into existence. Find the devil, heal yourself, make yourself wealthy with your words. You all here immediately recognize this heresy for what it is. But are we not all susceptible to the idea, even in its mildest form, that God will bless us for our faithfulness? Isn't that true? As Vodi Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, you've got to say Ouch. But how do you respond when not only does God not bless us, but brings devastating affliction into our lives? Like he did to Job. Real pain, real doubt, real anxiety, real emptiness, real desperation. So much you think Christians aren't supposed to feel this way. Ever been there? That is where the nation of Israel is at in Psalm 44. Listen to the next few verses. You give us as sheep to be eaten. And have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for no amount, and you have not profited from their price. Verse eleven gives us the unmistakable idea of being eaten up by the world. Spurgeon, commenting on this verse, said, "God appeared to give them up, like sheep allotted to the butcher, to abandon them, as hireling, as a hireling abandons the flock to wolves." The nation of Israel graphically slaughtered in battle with ease and frequency and their survivors carried off to captivity. God has done all this by his sovereign hand. And what is the result of such defeat? What's the result of the resulting slavery? Look at the next verse, 13. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a mockery and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the people. All day long my dishonor is before me, and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. This was a very public defeat in the sense that all the neighbors round about witnessed the humiliation. And their response is not sympathy for the nation, but blame and mocking and slander against the conquered. Verse 14 speaks of the nation becoming a byword, meaning that they were known as a people by some derogatory slang word. You know, Job, similarly, after his life fell apart, was devastated and spoke of the same derision from others. Job said, and he has made me a byword. This is speaking of the Lord. The Lord made me a byword of the people. And I am one at whom men spit. The hatred being so visceral, so graphic to the person of Job and the nation of Israel, which was prophesied by the prophets. And it'll be that just as you were a curse, think byword, among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel. Is that not true today? The term Jew, although it's a descriptive of a people group in our country, in other parts of the world, particularly the Middle East, it's a slang word. It's a byword where you have 300 million Arabs surrounding the borders of Israel. The same unrelenting anti-Semitism we see here in Psalm 44 results in verse 15 All day long, my dishonor is before me. And the shame of my face has covered me. Why? Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. The voice of their conquerors heard, the presence of their conquerors seen, reveals their close proximity, amplifying just how unbearably intimate and demoralizing this defeat was that has crushed them. Now, our next two verses bring in the real mystery of Psalm 44. Which we're going to look at more in depth later. But turn, read with me in Psalm, in Psalm 44, 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. Nor have our steps deviated from your path. You know, throughout the entire Old Testament, we see the pattern of Israel's infidelity, don't we? And the Lord's faithful judgment on them for their sin. With God continually warning the nation of Israel of the desolation that occurs when a nation turns against God. Yet here our text indicates they have not turned against God. But rather, we have not forgotten you. We have not felt fals- falsely with your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps deviated from your path. This is a troubling position for the nation of Israel to be And The psalmist is saying, we trusted you going into battle. We long for you. We look to you as our deliverer. And instead of victory, you have, we have defeat, disgrace, and humiliation. They say, we have been loyal, not turning to other gods. And yet here we are laid low, facing the taunts of the ungodly who hate us and blaspheme your name. And despite our faithfulness to follow your path and our loyal hearts given to you, you have given us over to this dark defeat. Look at verse 19. Yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals and covered us, with the shadow of death. You know, the inconsistency of this situation is both painful and bewildering to the psalmist. So much he can only turn to a hypothetical. Look at verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. The psalmist is say, acknowledging the omniscience of God. So the psalmist is saying, in essence, Lord, you would know. Such idolatry could not be concealed from you. Nothing is hidden from you. They're saying, You know not only the deeds of man, but the very secrets of his heart. He's proclaiming the national innocence of the nation of Israel, saying, If we had done wrong, you would know it. Then this divine affliction would be justified. But alas, we have not forgotten your name, nor have we spread our hands. To a strange God. Can we not relate when bad things happen to us? In our frustration to make sense of the why of the affliction. Sometimes we end up negotiating with God. Even our hypothetical sins and our hypothetical disobedience. That in our finite minds would be divinely worthy of such correction from the Lord. Thinking maybe if I sinned grievously or had not been in your word then this tribulation in my life would be justified as if we had the mind of God, as if we knew anything of the justice of God. For as Paul told the Corinthians, he said, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will direct him? Or as Isaiah said to the nation of Israel, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Back in Psalm 44, you can sense the psalmist's shocking conclusion in the next verse. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. The comparison made is of sheep that have been set aside to be slaughtered, sacrificed in the temple. As if the nation of Israel has resigned, that they've been set aside to suffer as martyrs for their loyalty to God in a world that is bent on rebellion against God. Understanding the position of the psalmist and by extension, the nation of Israel as innocent martyrs for the Lord, who are presenting themselves as faithful in thought, word and deed, yet are still brought into deep darkness into the furnace of affliction. And don't miss the key to this verse. It's for the Lord's sake. It's not for their sake or the nation of Israel's sake. But it is for the Lord's sake. That is a language of sacrifice. That is a language of martyrdom. Not for your sake, but for the sake or the sake of the nation of Israel. But for your sake, O Lord, we are killed. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Jesus developed this at length in the Sermon on the Mount. When he told his disciples, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We are sons and daughters of the persecuted one. We should not be surprised when they come for us. Amen. This should also help us understand Paul's use of this very verse in Psalm 44 when he was writing to the Romans, referring to faithful Christians. With such an encouragement to Christians who do suffer persecution and death for Christ's sake. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. But I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the extremes here. Amen, amen. Notice the extreme of the faithful believers facing death all day long, being balanced with this steadfast love of God. Paul goes out of his way to encourage the faithful martyrs that despite their lives being lost, they will not lose Christ. Christ and those who are in Christ are inseparable forever. The irony of Paul's recitation of this verse from Psalm 44 is that Paul calls the Christian, in the context of martyrdom, hyper which in the Greek it spells out hyper or hyper-conqueror, mega-conqueror, super-conqueror, or in the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, as those who overwhelmingly conquer. He's not pulling any punches here. Who is the mega-conqueror? Those that suffer persecution and death who pay the ultimate punishment for the sake of Christ. It's as if our suffering is a down payment on the coming victory. What an eternal promise we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, beginning in verse 23, we're confronted with some strong demands made to the Lord. Demands made by the nation of Israel that are born out of severe desperation. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. They received no answer as to the suffering and humiliation in the absence of any apparent cause on their part. It's as if upon no other theory, the psalmist could explain the inaction of God on their behalf. And you can see in the final four verses, there's no explanation given. Only a desperate clinging to God and a pleading to God to not reject their pleas. The references to God sleeping in verse 23 are anthropomorphisms. Just as we've seen previously with the hand of God, the arm of the Lord, figuratively giving God who is spirit human characteristics, to illustrate something we can identify with. From the perspective of the psalmist, God's unresponsiveness couldn't be that he didn't care about them, but rather that this is temporary. Framed in the idea of him being asleep, we also see the temporary nature of God's unresponsiveness in the cry, do not reject us forever. So the psalmist is believing that God is fully capable of awakening and saving them in this battle. Interestingly, the idea of sleeping was a charge that the nation of Israel had previously used against unresponsive pagan gods. We know this from Elijah in 1 Kings. When Elijah single-handedly goes up against 450 priests of Baal, the challenge was whoever brought down the fire on the sacrifice, that was the true God. You remember what happened? The prophets of Baal limped around the altar from morning till noon. No response from the pitiful Baal. Elijah can't help himself. As he watches them, and you've got to love the sarcasm here, Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is God, a God. Either he is occupied or relieving himself, or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. Of course, the grade school humor usually gets the most attention in this verse. But we do know from Psalm 121, the God of Israel never sleeps nor slumbers. It reads, Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. Next, in verse 24, we see two more anthropomorphisms, which again are symbolic human characteristics given to God. Why do you hide your face? and forget our affliction and our oppression. God, who is Spirit, has no face, and He forgets nothing. Again, the psalmist is conveying the idea of abandonment by the Lord, as if God is hiding from them, and the Lord is so unconcerned with their affliction and oppression, He must have forgotten about them. This results in verse 25. For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. They couldn't get any lower. Souls in the dust, body actually cleaved to the earth their misery has found its bottom below the soles of men's feet ever been that low figuratively face down in the dirt nothing going right no shred of hope to be found overwhelmed by utter and complete desperation the walls aren't closing in the walls have already closed in Every fear realized, every worst case scenario, a reality. The worst of the what-ifs has arrived. This entire psalm is built up to this moment of disaster. So we saw in the first eight verses, the psalmist looks back on the glory of Israel's history and says, Lord, you helped us in the past. And then through verses 9 through 25, the psalmist sees the grief of Israel's present state and says, Lord, you must help us now in the present. And now we turn to the last verse, verse 26. The psalmist pivots to the future with a dramatic change in tone. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. You know, it's short and sweet and to the point. But why is this verse so consequential? Because the psalmist climaxes the psalm with a bold, Call to action for God to rise up and be our help with the urgency that the very future of the nation of Israel hangs on his response. I must point out the standout phrase of the entire psalm are these last nine verses, not last nine words, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. What is the psalmist saying? It says, only by your mercy that we are saved, that we are redeemed. They realized that they were at the mercy of God, His steadfast love, His loving kindness. The psalmist knows from where His help comes, just like David knew from where His help came. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. The only source that can redeem them, that could help them, is Yahweh. So he says, rise up, be our help. The psalm ends with no resolution. No evidence that help ever did come for the nation of Israel defeated in battle. There's no Hollywood ending. There's no final answer, just a final plea, help us. Reminds us of Peter's failed attempt at walking on the water. Just before he was about to go under, seeing the wind, he's frightened. He begins to sink. Lord, save me. That is the cry of the believer also. When the waves are ready to crash over our heads and we're taken down as the nation of Israel was taken down and left in the lurch waiting for deliverance from the Lord. One of the lessons we can learn from Psalm 44 is that we are guaranteed tribulation, but we are not guaranteed deliverance. There may be deliverance ahead, but there may not be deliverance ahead. And this leads to another dimension of this psalm that presents an interesting dilemma. Previous, I called this the real mystery of Psalm 44. It's in verses 17 and 18. Look back with me to those verses, which read, All this has come upon us. We have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps deviated from your path. Do you see in these verses the unmistakable self-justifying by the nation of Israel? It's presented in the negative, but it's wrapped in the sense that the, the nation of Israel has not been unfaithful, and thus they've done nothing that would prohibit Yahweh from delivering them. You hear it in the phrases, we've not forgotten you, we have not dealt falsely, our heart has not turned back, our steps have not deviated from your path. One early commentator captured the dilemma of this this psalm in a single sentence. And it said, You helped us in the past. You must help us now. But you are not helping us. Even though we have done nothing to prohibit you from helping us. So help us. Translation, help us because we have been faithful. Now the language should immediately raise red flags for followers of Christ today, should New Testament believers display the same posture of justifying our faithfulness in times of affliction from the Lord? This is so critical that we understand the distinction between the nation of Israel in Psalm 44 and believers, New Testament believers in the church. We still ask for help, of course, just as the nation of Israel is here. But make no mistake... As New Testament believers, we can make no claim on God to save us due to our so-called unwavering faith. Why? Because we're under a different economy than the nation of Israel. Remember John 1, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, we see a reward-punishment system Israel, if you are obedient, I'll bless you. I will give you riches. I will give you land. And the nation of Israel was blessed mightily when they obeyed God. And they cursed God mightily when they disobeyed God. But here's the million-dollar question. Although this was a major theme of the Old Testament, is the church under this same system? If we are obedient, are we promised the status among the nations Like the nation of Israel was? By no means. What are we promised? Persecution. Jesus said in John 15, Remember the word that I said to you. Slave is not greater than his master. They persecuted me. They will also persecute you. So if we are obedient, are we promised land? Like the nation of Israel was in the Abrahamic covenant? By no means. What are we promised? We are promised a heavenly home. As Paul told the Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are mere sojourners. We are strangers in this land, passing through. We have no hope in land, but a hope in glory, as Paul told the Colossians. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations And has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. We don't have a hope in temporal things of this this world. We are not Israel. We are not the new Israel. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are part of the mystery not revealed in the Old Testament. We have Christ and we have the coming hope of glory when we will be with Him. So if we're obedient, are we promised riches like the nation of Israel? We are not promised riches. Again, are we greater than our Master? Matthew 8 records, Jesus said to them, The foxes have holes and the birds uh, birds of the air have nests, The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. We are never promised riches in the New Testament, as Israel was. We must never confuse the nation of Israel with the church. How does Israel, the unfaithful harlot, the divorced wife of Jehovah, how does the nation of Israel become the church who is betrothed to Christ as His virgin spotless bride? When you grab a hold of these distinctions between God's dealings with the nation of Israel under the law in Psalm 44 and God's dealings with the church under grace, only then does this odd self-righteous boasting by Israel begin to make sense to the New Testament believer. So we recognize when the psalmist is saying, you must save us because we've been faithful. It's as if he's saying our credit is good. Our credit score is in the 800s. So there's no reason you shouldn't approve us for help. And the reason that sounds odd to our ears is because we are under grace, unmerited, unconditional grace as a gift from God. Outside of any system of favor, God owes us nothing and we need to know that. It is by His grace For from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In Luke 18, we see the Pharisee. He's steeped in the law. He knows how this this punishment, this reward punishment system worked. He knew it well when he boasted of himself. He said, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But that sorry tax collector, he was under a different system. He was under the system of grace, a system that leaves no room for boasting, no room for self-righteousness, and no room for self-justification. And by the one, he was the one that went home justified, not the Pharisee. He went home a new creation in Christ. The verse reads, The tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes. To heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I must stress that all sinners, whether Jew or Gentile throughout history, are saved in the same way by faith alone, sola fide, yet within different administrations, or as Ephesians calls it, different dispensations. The nation of Israel was under the administration of the law. Believing Gentiles and believing Jews in the church. We're under the administration of grace. This is the mystery of that new thing, the church. Both Jew and Gentile, no distinctions. To form one body whose head is Christ, under not the law, but under grace. Romans 3 is so definitive here. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The nation of Israel's failure through the law showed man cannot earn his own righteousness and be reconciled to God. It is only by the righteousness of Christ apart from the law. Then the Father would be propitiated and a redeemed people would be reconciled to God. And this is being accomplished by Christ as he continues to build his church today. Knowing that under grace we can place no demands, no claims upon God. Why? Because we can boast in nothing of ourselves, in our righteousness, in our own faithfulness. We cannot demand as the nation of Israel demanded, but we are faithful. You must help us. For then the Lord's favor would be earned. And if it is earned, it is no longer what? It's no longer grace. And if it is all of grace, knowing we deserve no favor, then we see every favor, every good thing in our lives as an absolute blessing. Blessings we have not earned. Blessings we have not deserved. Then how much richer is our worship? Then how much richer is our devotion? Then how much richer is our faith? We already know that God will never leave us nor forsake us. But when we properly understand the unmerited favor of God, the grace of God, how good he is to us. We know why we will never want to leave him. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever and you do not know of this amazing grace this morning, please understand that this grace leads to truth. And not just any truth, but the truth that God is both the just and And the justifier, as Romans 3 indicates. Because he is perfectly just, he must find you guilty, unredeemable. Why? Because you are guilty. He is perfect and you are soaked in sin. So you may ask, how can he be both the just judge, who must judge sin in order to be just, and at the same time, Be the justifier who forgives sin. How does that work? Can there be a more important question in the Bible? The answer by means of a perfect substitute. In that divine courtroom, before the gavel dropped, a substitute stepped forward and said, Wait, I have paid the price for the one found guilty. And then your case is thrown out. And then you are free from the bondage of sin and the punishment you deserve. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, took the punishment from the Father for your sins. Do not trample underfoot the blood of Christ. Do not neglect the weightiness of this sacrifice. Do not neglect the weightiness of this free gift, the gift of grace. For all eternity hangs in the balance if you are unconverted this morning. How will you stand in that final day before the just judge of the living and the dead? It is only those that bend a knee in repentance over their sins and put all their faith and trust in that substitute. The one that stepped forward for you, Jesus Christ. Only then will you pass from death to life. So I plead with you, end your rebellion. End it today and come to Christ. Let's pray as Noel brings the team up to finish in one last song Amazing Grace. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we know we can make no claim on you and we can boast nothing of ourselves. We can only come to you and say, Help us, Lord. Have mercy on us. We praise you and we thank you for the clearness of your word this morning. And we thank you for your son who died for our sins so we may be set free from the bondage of sin and death and the just punishment we deserve. We praise you, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.